When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have this theory that every single human, at some point in their life, finds themselves on the other side of tragedy. Meaning that we all hit a point in our narrative where life gets hard, or in the case of some, really, really hard. And then out of that space, tragedy creates two types of people. The kind of people that find their purpose for the pain, or the kind of people that spend their whole life searching for it. Nietzsche once said, He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Author, speaker, and life coach Natalie Norton is a testament to the truth of Nietzsche's words. Her story is no stranger to inextricable pain. The death of a younger brother, the death of a youngest son, the failed adoption of beautiful children who had been hers for two years when the state unexpectedly reunited them with their biological mother, a sudden seizure that left her unable to communicate remember her own name, or identify her children as her own. What's wild is that these events don't even scratch the surface. However, despite the fire Natalie's been through, she fights on. I'm deeply humbled by Natalie's courage to share her story on Sounds Good today as my guest. I've admired her for a long time, and I followed her on social media, and I still came away from this conversation with so much. Goodness gracious, it oh, this is a good one. I'm Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good, the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. So without any further ado, let's just jump straight into Natalie's story. So Natalie, I have quickly become a huge fan of you, and I love following along with you online, and we've got a number of mutual friends but at the same time, I don't know a lot about you. And, and I kind of realized as I was preparing for this conversation that I know two things about you for sure. And number one is that you live in a beautiful place. You live in Hawaii. Have you always lived in Hawaii? Um, yeah, we live on the North Shore of Oahu. And I first moved here um, just out of high school. I went to like a community college for about a year um, back home where I grew up, which was Alpine, Utah, and then moved to Hawaii um, after that first year. And I've been here ever since. So I've been here since 2000. You just got hooked on it when you showed up? Yeah, it was very much, um, I want to say divinely inspired. I don't <laughs> know that there's anywhere else I could be as happy or whole. Um, the story actually is is kind of unique. I had been really like contemplating this move because for me at that time, it was a really big decision. I'd never moved away from my family. I'd, I was very, very close to my, my brother, my only sibling, um, very close to both my parents. And the idea of moving over an ocean would just, first of all, have never occurred to me. And then when I did sort of start tossing that idea around, um, I was very conflicted about it. And I remember I was walking down the stairs from the library, headed to class, and I just 
said under my breath, like, I just need a sign. I just need a sign. And I looked up and on the wall in front of me at the bottom of these stairs, I was descending from the library. There was an office and that office, it was just a big window that overlooked that staircase. And on that window, someone had put a decal, a sticker. And on that sticker were two palm trees. And then underneath it, it said, no bad days. And Uh I saw that and I just (laughs) thought, you know what? That's my sign. I'm going. Yeah. And here I am. Wow. That is great. And I'm so glad that the sign that you needed was to move to Hawaii and not just some terrible, awful place. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Like Siberia. Like it could have been like Antarctica, (laughs) but thankfully for me, I got to move to Oahu. So I'm a winner. So that's the first thing that I know about you and you're a photographer. And so it's, it's fun seeing your photos in Hawaii. But the second thing I know about you is that you've experienced a great amount of tragedy and heartbreak and pain in your life. And you've held on tight and you've made it through to the other side or you've at least continued to push through despite all of the pain and heartbreak and crap. And that you use that ultimately to share your story with others and to connect with other people who are experiencing the same thing. And, you know, as far as two things to know about somebody, those are two things that I'm glad to know about you. Yeah. Um, I have definitely experienced a, I don't know that I would say disproportionate amount, although I will be very transparent in saying that sometimes it has felt disproportionate. Um, But then when I think wider than myself, when I think more globally or just in terms of humanity in general, it puts things into perspective and helps me realize that, yeah, I've been through some very hard things, but there's so much that I can't even comprehend that happens out there in the world. And so it takes me away from that space that I may be tempted to fall into, which is pity party, and moves me to a place that's perhaps more empowering and moves me towards a dedication to doing more for others. Because I think that the great human equalizer, perhaps, I mean, there's quite a few, but one would absolutely be suffering. All of us suffer. All of us hurt. All of us experience loss and loneliness. And despite the cluster of losses that I may have experienced and just how deep and dark and devastating that has been in so many ways, if I were given the opportunity to go back and unwind or undo any of that, I really don't know that I would because I really see the ways in which my life has been so dramatically changed and my capacity to reach out and be a help and perhaps even a conduit to others or an example to others of life despite great hardship of living wide awake and showing up for life. I don't know that there's anything that I could possibly be doing with my life that would be more fulfilling and those very, very hard and challenging things that I have faced have very much informed that. That's incredible. And that's so powerful. And I want to get into all of that. But before we do, I'd I'd love to just zoom out a little bit and get a little bit more context on your life. How would you describe what you do? I know that your background is in photography. I actually, I hopped on Facebook and just looked and we've got like 50 mutual friends and they're all photographers. And I think that's (laughs) hilarious. Um, But, you know, tell me a little bit more about what you do. So um, I started having kids very young. Well, 
comparatively young. <laughs> I guess it's all relative. But um, I had my first son when I was 21 and had quite a few kids in a row, three kids within three years, all boys. And I picked up a camera when my first was very little and just fell in love with photography. And I was a professional photographer for an entire decade, loved it. Huge, huge, significant part of, of my life. I made a a great living for myself, got to travel all over and meet so many exceptional and amazing people. And then within the last five years or so, I've transitioned and I'm doing a lot more in terms of personal development and life coaching and working with individuals and small businesses and helping them either be the best version of themselves they can be or develop the best version of their company that they possibly can. And um, I do a lot of speaking engagements now. I travel all over still, thankfully, because I love to travel. But now the context looks a little bit different. Both of those things are super entrepreneurial and they seem like things that, you know, you started on your own. Did you have family that kind of was a little bit creative and entrepreneurial or, or was that unique for you? Well, that's an interesting question because yes, I would definitely describe my mom as a creative, but not specifically so, just sort of in a general way. Um, however, my dad was one of the founding members of the Covey Leadership Center, which is now called Franklin Covey. And so I grew up in a world that was just saturated in personal development. It was saturated in self-help books and going to, to different seminars and traveling with my dad and meeting the most exceptional thought leaders. And so the entrepreneurial part wasn't so much what I saw modeled for me, but what I did see modeled was living your very best life, constantly honing the skills necessary to do that, and maintaining a real commitment to personal passion and drive. Interesting. And do you feel like when you were spending a decade doing photography, do you feel like you were kind of missing out on some of that self-growth that you'd kind of grown up with that you later came back to? Or, or did you still find a way to connect that then? That's actually a really good question. Um, something that I've come to realize, it's actually was at a speaking event. I was speaking at an event in outside Phoenix and another one of the speakers came up and spoke to me afterwards. And he focused a lot of his message on the difference between what he called talents and gifts. And that's, I'm only sharing that because that's sort of the best way that I found to explain my transition between these two careers, um, I believe I was a very talented photographer. I achieved a lot of success. It was so fulfilling for me. But I think that I have a gift for human connection. I have a gift for deep empathy. I have a gift for almost being an empath or a spiritual empath on some level where I just have this capacity to connect with people in ways that many don't. And so in retrospect, when I look back, I realize that I think the reason I was able to develop that talent of photography so completely was because of these other gifts that make me a really good life coach. And so I think that being a photographer in many ways 
honed that skill of connection even more significantly. Um, I could get into an environment and very quickly cut down all of the facade and get to that real human place, that place that is more vulnerable, that place that I want people to feel when they see a photograph, that truth. I want people to look at a photograph and feel as though they've been transported right back to that relationship, right back to that moment, um, right back to that feeling of love. And that's not something that you can create without having the capacity to create that real connection with a subject and you have to do it really quickly. And so I think that they kind of both go hand in hand. And I don't know that I ever knew how to separate out the personal development side because that even when I wasn't doing it as a career, it was such an innate part of who I am that it was always something I was developing simultaneously. That's really, really fascinating. And I do love that idea of talents versus gifts. And it kind of spurred to mind some parts of my life where I'm like, oh, that's the differentiation between why, you know, I maybe didn't continue with that, but maybe I, I continued with the heart behind that. Um, yeah, exactly. You said that, you know, empathy and this ability to connect with others is a gift for you. Do you feel like that for you and maybe for others is something that you were born with or something that you had experiences early on that shaped that? Um, I think a lot of it, if I am really looking at it, I do think I inherited a portion of it from my mom. Um, she is incredibly empathic just in general and always modeled that kind of behavior for me. But I do also believe it's something I was just born with. Um, as I was growing up, I suffered from a tremendous amount of anxiety, which I don't know that anyone who actually knew me during my young years would have recognized. But for me internally, there was always just this undercurrent of anxious energy. And I now recognize that because I was so empathic and felt so deeply, being alive in the world was a tricky thing for me. It really was because relationships were hard because I could feel what people were experiencing. I, I could tap into these places that, that we all try to mask with a smile or we try to mask with body language or with the speed of our language or whatever, the, whatever it may be. We mask these things in so many ways. But even as a young child, I think I was really keyed in. And as I've gotten older, I've come to recognize that and um, learned ways of dealing with it in, in healthy ways. But um, yeah, I think I think it's a combination of both, both a learned behavior and something that I think I was born with. And I was going to ask, I was going to ask if, because you mentioned that you had that anxiety when you were younger, and I was going to ask if that was something that had continued or or something that you had kind of learned and grown through. Or, you know, I don't know if it's possible to even entirely grow through it either. Yeah, I think it's both. I think that, well, first of all, when I was young, I put up a really thick wall because, and I, I, this was all subconscious. I, I now recognize this, but I think that at the time, all that feeling was just too much. And I always felt like I was at risk. I always felt like I was in danger because all you pick up on all those feelings and they're not always comfortable. You know, other people's anxieties and stresses and fears coupled with your own and having them be, being magnified so completely and not understanding that they don't all belong to me and not understanding that they aren't actually representative of a real threat. I put up a lot to protect myself and I became a little hardened. Um, like it's almost, it makes me think of that phrase that you hear sometimes like cowboy up, you know, I think I kind of cowgirled up and like, I just got tough and, um, 
I think that I, I moved away from myself for quite a few years because I wasn't emotionally capable of processing what was real. And so I created a barrier between myself and what was real. And as I got older, I think just through life experience, but also just through age and having more self-awareness, little by little, I transitioned from that from that space and recognized my anxiety for what it was. And some of it, I think, was probably clinical. I don't know that it all stemmed from these experiences that I was having or from the way that I experienced the world. I think that there's a portion of it that's clinical um, because I know that there's a family history on both of my parents' side of anxiety. And so I think that there was a combination there. But as I've created um, or as I've developed a greater level of self-awareness, I've also developed tools that have helped me manage that in, in more significant ways. So to answer the question, first of all, just understanding what's happening is very freeing. Understanding that it's not necessarily real, it's a perception of reality. That in and of itself was incredibly tran um, transitional. It was, a, it was a big transition for me. Um, I had that realization probably in my early 20s. And I, I was just, it was like having someone take shackles off of my body. I just, it was the difference in how I felt just having the awareness that maybe what I was feeling and experiencing wasn't warranted. There's no way for me to really go into it without an hour just to talk about that. But then in addition to that, developing tools, that's really served me as well. So yes, I still do feel as though I experienced some of that, but I'm much more well-equipped to deal with it, to see it for what it is and to manage it in meaningful ways. I think that's amazing that you started taking down that wall brick by brick and you got to start maybe experiencing life on a, on a greater level. Do you feel like you doing that has contributed to your ability to deal with these difficult, heartbreaking experiences in your life? Do you think that that allowed you to weather those storms better? Mm, yes. And I think that the storms, like you mentioned, kind of dismantling all of this brick by brick. I think that my thought, as you said, that was, yeah, and grenade by grenade. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I look at it and I think that, yes, I was already engaged in that work very intentionally before any of the trauma showed up. But I do think that staring those kinds of hardships square in the eyes requires fight or flight. And I think that staying and being willing to stay with the hurt and the hardship rather than to fortify those walls being willing to really feel the significance of the pain that I felt assisted me in the long run in the process of getting rid of those walls completely. If you don't mind me asking, do you remember the very first time that you experienced that trauma and you chose to, to stay, to stay in that anxiety and pain? Yes. I don't know if this is the first time, but this is a time when it feels incredibly poignant to me. And so it's the easiest for me to explain. It was shortly after the death of my son. And I remember, I think I walked into my bedroom and his crib was still set up there by my bed and his little baby blanket was there. And I remember picking it up and smelling it and just being overcome by the smell of him. And my initial thought was to put that away and to not ever have to experience that again. But instead, I picked up that blanket. I wrapped it around my neck 
and I wore it as a scarf for the rest of the day. And I told myself that, of course, I was having this kind of response, but that it was beautiful because it was evidence of a deep, abiding love. And I probably spent a majority of that day in tears, but I also spent a majority of that day in an intimate closeness with love. It's interesting that you're able to hold both of those things at once. And when I know that our friend Ashley Lemieux has been on the podcast and Ashley talks about this idea of holding joy and sorrow in the same hand and maybe this idea that if you experience sorrow in a greater way, you experience joy in the same great capacity. Do you feel like that's true here too? I absolutely do. I think that, and first of all, Ashley is exceptional and a dear friend. And the two of us have really walked through some tough things together and been able to stand hand in hand. And I just, I'm so thankful for her. Um, But what she says about joy and pain, I definitely would echo that. I, I think that we don't necessarily have the capacity to understand something without on some level understanding the opposite. Like we know light is light because darkness exists. If darkness didn't exist, it would just be it. See, like light would just be that thing, it. We wouldn't have a way to even understand it as being the opposite of anything or even being anything worth naming because it would just be this constant thing that existed and we wouldn't even know that it was. Does that make sense? Like you don't know that you... You don't understand air until you have none, until you're not filling your lungs, until the absence of air, you don't understand that air exists. And I think that maybe the same is true of joy and pain. And I can certainly say that from my own life, as my pain has increased and as I've had the courage to touch the deepest parts of that pain without feeling as though I'm, I'm somehow failing for hurting or without, without shrinking away because I'm too afraid, I definitely see ways in which my capacity to experience joy has, has increased in exponential ways. How long ago did your son pass away? My son died in 2010. And so, and it was about this time of year. So it was January of 2010. So it's been almost exactly eight years, which that's insane to me. That is, it seems impossible. It feels like yesterday. During the last eight years, then, you've been pretty vocal about sharing that story and and the traumatic experience that that was for you and your husband and your family. And was that an intentional choice in the very beginning to be vocal about that? Well, we have to go back a few steps because it wasn't really with my son that the vocality began. Two years before my son died, I actually lost my brother, my my younger brother, Gavin, so my sorry. only sibling. Thank you. My dear, dear, dear friend. He um, was truly my person, just exceptional in every way and such a Is he older or younger? Younger. He was four years younger than me. And we just had a very, very special relationship. And he died unexpectedly in his sleep at 21. And obviously, that's something that you just don't imagine for a healthy 21-year-old man to go to sleep and not wake up in the morning. And nothing's wrong with him. I mean, the autopsy showed nothing. The toxology reports showed nothing. He just died. And it was um, a very harrowing experience for me. I, I don't know that at that point in my life, I had ever experienced that level of 
trauma that feels that that idea of the rug being pulled out from under you, that free fall feeling. I can still in this moment conjure that and feel the intensity of that. It was just, it was as if someone coming in and telling me that a meteor had struck the planet and everyone was going to die. It just, it was so impossible and so far off my radar that it just really, really shook me. So the process began at that point. And it was actually back, this was in 2007. So just about 10 and a half years ago. And um, at this time, blogs were kind of just becoming the thing, you know, and I had just started a blog for my photography. And I think that either my first or second post on the blog was talking about the death of my brother. And that process for me was incredibly therapeutic. I process things vocally. I've found that over the years that I need to talk things through. And writing filled that for me. It allowed me to to open this dialogue and, and to express things that in expressing them, I was able to actually figure them out. That before I expressed them, I didn't really know how I felt. I didn't really know the depth of, of what I felt, and I, it helped me work through it. So then two years later, um, when my son passed away, he, he was named Gavin. My brother was Gavin, and we named our son after him. And when he died, it was a continuation of the same process. And first, it began as therapy talking about these things because that was how I held on to my sanity. It was for me. And I I want to say, oh, I was doing this for others, but, but truly at the heart of it, it was how I survived. It was me reaching out into the abyss and just saying, please, someone, I, I, I can't bear this alone. And the abyss reached back, you know, and I just found all these wonderful people that either were suffering in similar ways or were just there to, to, send love and light to me and just sort of stand with me and hold space for me. And it was so profoundly powerful, that connection. And then starting to realize things that I would write that were very honest, because there's there's one thing about me, there's a lot of things about me that are a mess. I will own that outright. But there's one thing about me that is absolute. I, I don't do well with surface level anything. I'm very, very honest with myself and with others. And so in a lot of times I would feel ashamed about the things that I was writing or the things that I was speaking about, or I, I would feel so embarrassed just thinking people are going to think that I am so weird, that I'm, that I'm owning all this out loud, but I didn't know how not to. If I was going to open this, this story and open this dialogue, I didn't know how to withhold. I really didn't. It just felt outside of integrity to me. I felt, I felt this responsibility to own it outright because I just on some level inherently understood that I would be doing people a disservice if I masked anything that it wasn't fair, that if I was going to step out and talk about these things openly, I needed to be willing to do it with all of my bleeding heart. And the response was profound. People reaching out and telling me their stories that, that were either directly related to loss or not. Some of them were completely different sorrows or hardships that they were facing. And just having someone say out loud that they hurt and someone say out loud the depth of how, how completely they hurt or the darkest pieces of what that hurt looked and felt like, it was like it gave them permission 
to move forward without feeling as though they were somehow the anomaly, that they somehow didn't know how to deal with the hurt, or they somehow were failing at their own grief because of the darkness that they were experiencing. It was like they recognized in my pain a portion of their own. And in my effort to rebuild my life, they recognized their capacity to do the same. So at this time, you're beginning to have this this awareness that by you sharing your pain, other people realize that their pain is real and their pain is valid and uh, maybe even that their pain is okay. And, you know, this is a big traumatic experience. Again, did you ever think that you would need to have that information again? Like, did you expect that more trauma would ever come? No. In fact, I really felt as though I had reached my quota after my brother died. Of course. I had this, this, right? I just had this thought that like, this is my hard thing. Like every life is going to have a big hard thing and this is mine. And so then two years later, when my son fell ill, I truly did not believe in a scenario in which we did not walk out of that hospital with him in our arms. I just, I 100% on every level believed that we would, that he would experience complete healing because of that idea of quota. Yeah. And that's exactly how it works in a movie. That's how it works in the people that we know. Yep, absolutely. And so I had a lot to draw from when my son died and This sounds crazy, but the familiarity helped a lot because remember how I mentioned that feeling of falling or as though the rug had been pulled out from under me when my brother died. It was different when my son died because it it wasn't as jarring because I was familiar with that kind of pain. And I think that that was maybe my saving grace. I think that had the pain felt as jarring, I mean, the pain itself was as significant, obviously, if not more significant, because this is my boy, my flesh and blood, my my heart, my child. But that jarring nature of the pain wasn't there. That that shaking and that, that unfamiliarity that just knocks the breath out of you. That was different. And I think that 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 was a real mercy for me because I don't know that I could have handled that again on a psychological level. I think it may have done me in. How do you feel like your life shifted after the loss of your son? How do you like, I don't want to say the words on the other side of that pain, because I have no doubt that that pain hasn't gone anywhere. But, you know, did you have a moment where you're like, life is is different now? I'm going to make a change. I'm going to I'm going to do something different. I'm going to, you know. Yes. What is that? Yes. Well, first, I mean, again, we have to go back to my brother um, because when he died, it was a shift in identity because it wasn't just that I'd lost this person that I loved. I was now an only child. I was now just Natalie. I felt very alone in the world. And I think for those of us who I mean, if you grow up as an only child, I don't know if you experience this in the same way because it's what you know, but maybe you do because I've never experienced that. I don't know. But my friends I know who have more than one sibling, they're a part of that. It's like it's their identity is in part being a part of this relationship, this this tree, this web. And for me, my web was just him. And so suddenly he's gone and I just felt so alone. And if we go back even further than that, and I promise I will answer your question, but I used to study, and I still do, um, the life of Viktor Frankl. And I don't know what 
sparked my my passion for that man. I know a lot of people have read read Man's Search for Meaning. Um, to give some context to those of your listeners who maybe aren't familiar, um, Viktor Frankl was um, a Holocaust survivor. He was imprisoned in Auschwitz, and he was a psychotherapist before um, being imprisoned there. And so during his time there, he he focused a lot on what it was that made the difference for those prisoners who lived and those prisoners who died. What was the differentiator, right? If there was one. And then he wrote a book about, about his experience and developed his own kind of therapy surrounding that in his later life. Um, but what he found was that those who had a meaning, some sense of meaning in their life were more likely to survive than those who did not have a sense of meaning. The meaning may be a loved one on the outside that they yearned to be with again. The the meaning may be a, a, a significant belief in God and and believing that that all things would combine together for their good because they loved God. Or it didn't matter what the meaning was, but the presence of meaning seemed to be the differentiating factor between those who survived and those who did not. So I started studying Viktor Frankl when I was gosh, in my late teens, my parents introduced me to his work. And I, I, I've read that book to date probably 20 times. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's higher than that. <laughs> That's a conservative estimate. Um, but it was such a significant part of my belief system. And so from a very young age, I feel as though I had been inspired to study the idea that we can survive anything if we have meaning in our lives. And what I've found is sometimes we have to assign that meaning. Sometimes we have to choose on our own. I may never know why my brother died. I may never know. And I probably will never know why my son died. And maybe there isn't a why. In a lot of the, the challenges we go through in our lives, there isn't a why. It just happened. It really is hard and sad, but it just happened. And I think that sometimes we find madness in searching for the why. If I could just understand why, then I could move forward with my life. Well, if we're in that space, if we're stuck in that camp looking for why, we may not ever make it to the other side because why is elusive. But if we can on our own elect a reason why or select that meaning and say, you know what? In my case, this is the perfect example. I chose the meaning of these losses to be so that I could make a greater impact in the lives of others, so that I could reach out to others who didn't have the tools that I have and offer support and love, even if it's not in huge trauma, even if it's just in the throes of being a young parent, trying to run a business and feeling as though you're not able to manage like bringing these little tiny babies up while simultaneously trying to bring up your little business, you know, it just, just being present and available for people. And that's the meaning that I assigned. I don't know that that's real on some cosmic level, but that's what I choose. And pointing all of my energy and attention to that space has been revolutionary for me because I'm not drowning down inside my story. I'm standing up on top of it. And I'm reaching down for others and saying, look, your story is what it is. And we're not devaluing it on any level, but let's not suffocate inside of it. It reminds me of that quote that I believe was Nietzsche, um, who said something along the lines of, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And I, I believe that down to the bottom of my feet. Like even just saying that it brings up like emotion for me because I know it's true. I know that if we have a why, 
we really can survive anything. Because if you had asked me 10 years ago, if I could survive the death of my brother, the death of my son, the loss, we had a failed adoption that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, um, a failed adoption where I, for two years, had these three kids in my home who were my children in every way. And then unexpectedly, one day I get a phone call saying, hey, they're going back to their biological mom. I never in a million years would have thought that I would have the capacity to manage those things. Those were the kinds of things that you saw in a made-for-TV movie. They were not the things that I, me, little old Natalie from Alpine, Utah, could have ever had the capacity to move through. And yet here I am on the other side. So when I say he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how, I know it. It's not this conceptual idea that sounds nice. It's actually something that I am living, breathing proof of. Do you remember the first time that you actually started to kind of live into that why? Like, how did you begin to live into that new meaning that you had found? Yeah, well, and actually, that's a good lead because I need to go back and actually answer your previous question. Um, <laughs> I love this. This is such a fun conversation. I'm just, I'm, we've got so many loops and it's, uh, oh, thank I'm you. The worst. My brain is just like full speed ahead at all times. Good. And so like, I really think I would be a really good like candidate for like ADHD medication probably <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of slow my brain down, help me focus on one thing at a time because everything connects to everything else, right? Like it, that's just how my brain works. But um, going back before I was talking about my brother. So as I mentioned, trying to redevelop my identity, like having lost that identity, realizing that I really had to rebuild myself and stepping into this space where I said, okay, I've got, I, I really felt this way. Like, like it sounds so dramatic when I say it back, but this is truly how I felt. I felt like I had two choices. Number one was to figure it out and to live joyfully. And number two was to crawl in a hole and die. And I did not know how to do the middle in my mind and in my soul. It was really figure out how not to let go of this tenderness that you feel, how not to put that wall back up, figure out how to do that and simultaneously live a joyful, radiant life or give up emotionally and just suffocate and die. And I thankfully believed that I had the capacity to choose the former, not the latter. And I stepped into it and I leaned into it. And it was at that point when, when I really began really diving into the idea of personal development. And I really started studying some of these greats I'd been introduced to as a child. Um, and I really started focusing on my physical health. I started focusing on my mental, my emotional health. I just threw myself at all of these things. And so then when my son passed away, um, I was already very deeply entrenched in all that kind of work. It was very much my life. So I did feel broadsided and I did feel derailed, but I also felt as though I had a leg up because there was a, a map. Even though the map looked a little different, I at least had a general idea of what to expect and a general idea of how to navigate the hardship. And so that idea of why would be at the heart of all of the work. And I think that I wasn't aware that that's what I was doing when I first started this journey back after my brother died. But now I can say that the why at that time was not to die. 
The why was live a radiant life. The why was don't allow this to take away everything that you have. Don't allow, I knew that bitterness could be around the corner and significantly or specifically, excuse me, specifically after my son died, I remember vividly thinking this could destroy my marriage because we all have heard those statistics, right? Totally. Surrounding death yeah. of a child and and divorce. And actually, as my son was in the very end of his illness, when we finally, as, as a couple, had wrapped our, our hearts and our minds around the fact that he wasn't going to make it, we sat on either side of his hospital bed and we held hands across him and we talked very openly about what we knew was coming for us because we just experienced it. We just experienced Richie, my husband and my brother were very close to each other as well. And so he had been through this journey with me. It was hard on all of us. And we just made really significant promises to each other that this relationship would grow through this hardship. It was almost like a covenant, like, like that is probably the most significant promise set of promises I've made outside of my marriage was that moment in that hospital room, holding hands across my dying boy and promising my husband that we would grow together. So there was that why in addition, that why of, of living a radiant life with my husband and assigning that meaning. And I, it was, it was then, I think, if we had to say a specific time when I identified a why it would be then. That's beautiful, truly, that that's what you found to live for and to stick around for. And how did that impact your next few years, you know, as you continue to heal and grow, you know, and, and as it looks like you start looking into adoption and, and fostering kids, you know, tell me about, you know, you're in your husband's marriage and tell me about all of the meaning that you were beginning to find in your life despite this pain. Yeah. Well, it's tricky because I don't want to discredit the challenges because I think that when a narrative like this is expressed in a context like this, it tends to sound very triumphant, which is awesome. I love to sound like a hero. It's my favorite thing. But... That's not necessarily the whole picture because we're looking at years and years of really concerted effort. We're not looking at day in and day out, things were just fine. There were dark times where it was really hard. There were times when when I just felt like I was truly losing my mind because I had this sort of clustered grief. Like it was, they call it compound grief in, in therapy sometimes. Um, and I studied a lot about that just because the idea fascinated me. I had it in my head, like there's got to be a name for this when people go through more than one trauma. And then sure enough, through research, I find, oh, it's an actual thing, compound grief. That's what I have. I have that thing. And like trying to figure out how in the world you untangle it all because it's like you're revisiting your grief from before and then you're experiencing new grief and then everything just is just so out of control that there were times when I genuinely thought I was losing my mind. And I want to make sure that I articulate that part too, because then the people who are out there listening and whether they're going through something like the loss of a child or mental health illnesses of their own, maybe depression, or maybe there's infidelity in their marriage, or maybe they have a business that's failing, whatever the thing may be, it doesn't matter because those feelings that we experience, they may be slightly different, but they come from the from essentially the same DNA, so to speak, the same emotional DNA. We're experiencing the same kinds of feelings. And so for people who are in their own suffering or their own challenges, and they only hear the triumphant side, 
then they may for a while put their head down and think, yay, hooray, I can do this. And they work hard and they think, this is it. I'm going to do what Natalie did and I'm going to make my life amazing and no one can stop me. And then when they hit the wall, they think, oh, well, I'm just not as strong as all these other people. I'm not as powerful. I'm different. I'm broken. So we have to be willing to talk about the path, not just the destination when we're on top of the mountain, shaking our fists in the air. Yay, I did it. Right? And so there were times when it was really dark, but having made that decision that we were going to do everything in our power to do right by each other as a couple and as a family, it was a lifeline. It was like that speck of light at the end of a tunnel. Whereas otherwise, we may have thought we were in a cave. We may have thought that we were just in the darkness and there was no way out and we were just bumping into walls. But because we had that little speck of darkness that kept reminding us that it was a tunnel, not a cave, that on the other side, there was light and there was purpose and there was a radiant life available to us. It gave us a sense of direction and helped us pick ourselves up and keep pressing forward. And it kept us away from shame which I think when people are experiencing hardship, there's a lot of shame wrapped up in that, right? Because we don't see the behind the scenes of people's lives. We just see the triumph. And so I think that just understanding that the pain and the difficulty informs the triumph, right? It's not the roadblocks that keep us from the triumph. Rather, it's the stepping stones that lead us there. And it's true for all of us. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm, I don't think I'm responding correctly right now because I'm just still like processing everything you just said. But wow. I love the way that you're able to, to speak to your experiences with such wisdom. I appreciate that. And something I actually want to interject there is, yeah. you know, I, for a long time, I felt, I felt really timid about saying out loud some of the things that I'm saying here, specifically things that celebrate the triumph. But I'm less that way now because I feel as though what you call wisdom is very well earned. And I'm willing to own that now that, yeah, you know what? This didn't just fall on me. I didn't read a book. I didn't, I didn't go to school and get a degree where all these, I learned all these things by reading case studies. I, I lived it. I laid face down on that mat, you know, like, and then I got up and I, and I did it. And I know that if I can, you can, all of us can. And that's not even for the deeply difficult things. That's even for the little things, like the little issues in our life. Like maybe you have a neighbor that you really suck at being neighborly to because that neighbor is a Republican or a Democrat or voted for Trump. Or do you know what I mean? Or voted for Clinton. <laughs> You've got a really good reason, probably, not to want to be neighborly. But even in that instance, you can pick yourself up and you can show up with love. And that changes not only their life, but your life too. If we want to live our best lives, we have to be willing to show up for love no matter what, even in the easy stuff. Sometimes, this sounds a little crazy, but sometimes I look at the hard things I've gone through and I almost think that they were easier than the easy things. Now, let me explain. Obviously, losing a child is much harder than let's just go back to that neighbor example, then learning to love your neighbor who sucks and like lets their dog poop on your lawn. Like losing my child is much harder than that. But 
because of the all-encompassing nature of that trial, because it's the kind of trial that grabs you by the throat and you cannot ignore, you're much more inclined to square off to it, to look it in the eyes and to do what you need to do to move through it in meaningful ways. Whereas some of these other things that we deal with, that we suffer through these annoyances or these grievances or these, these weaknesses that we may have, or these, these, um, the rough edges of our spirits and, and our personalities that we like to ignore, we're not looking at those things square on every day. We don't have to be grabbed by the throat and face the fact that we don't really like our neighbor. We can just ignore that because it's not an essential part of our everyday life. Whereas losing a child, that's not going to go to the back burner. That's not going to fall out of your mind. I remember after my son died, people saying like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I never want to ask because I don't want to remind you. And I'm like, like I am not thinking about it all the time. You think that you asking me how I'm doing is going to remind me that my son died? Uh, pretty sure I will never forget that. And even now, 10 years from my brother dying and eight years from my son dying, it's still one thought away. It's always right there under the surface. I'm never going to forget those things. They're a part of my day in and day out, whereas some of these other little things in our lives aren't that way. So in that way, in that respect... It can be actually easier to show up for your life when it's really, really challenging than it can be when it's not, because you're not going to forget. That's really interesting. And, you know, every conflict is an opportunity for growth. And, you know, those big conflicts, you're not going to shy away from that because you can't. You can't. Yeah. But those little things every single day. Oh my goodness. I, I can't even imagine how many I ignore on a daily know, basis. Right. You know, there's a book called The Four Agreements that I that I really, really love and recommend to people all the time. But one of the, it's, it's just a, essentially a list of agree, agreements that, that you live by, right? Like they're just non-negotiable. This is how you live. And one of those agreements is always do your best. And I seriously want to tattoo that to every portion of my body to just remember, because it's not even that you have to always do amazing. It doesn't say always be amazing or always crush life or always like be spectacular. It just says always do your best. And my best today is going to look really different than my best tomorrow. And my best right after my kid died, that looks a lot different than it does today. And it's okay. Wherever we are, it's okay. As long as within integrity, we can look ourselves in the eye and say, I'm doing my best. And that's what's going to change this world. That's what's going to increase the, the spiritual vibration, the light vibration that each of us experiences across the scope of the entire planet. It's that willingness to show up every day and do our best. Whatever that looks like, just within integrity, be able to say, it was my best. Natalie, oh my goodness. I absolutely love this idea of just being your best self, like doing your best. And I don't know, it's just so interesting to think about all of the ways in my life where it would be easy to cut corners or it'd be easy to just not, you know, try to become my best self or do my best. But when you just follow by that principle, it allows you to get through some of those really difficult moments. I think that's fascinating. It certainly gives you a sense of purpose. And I think that a sense of purpose 
gives you a sense of momentum. And so it's just a matter of starting. And it's not that complicated. You know, we like to think like, like, seriously, think about it as a yes, no question. Did you do your best or didn't you? You know, we like to have like qualifiers like, well, yeah, but or kind of or, well, you know, but if there was no qualifier available, it's just yes or no. Did you or didn't you? And two things happen there. Number one, you have to show up with greater self-love because there will be times when you don't feel like you did your best when you really did. You know you can do better, but you you know that in that circumstance, on that day, you really did all you could. And that that requires you to have a lot of love and compassion for yourself. And then on the other side, it holds you accountable when you are kind of a jerk, you know, when you didn't do your best because you let your ego get in the way or whatever the thing may be. So one of the things that is I am just so passionate about this. And I, I alluded to this earlier, that idea that I'm not going to shy away from owning how exceptional I am. And part of that is that I don't want others to shy away from that either. I don't think that I'm like more exceptional than anyone else. What I've learned through my experience and through working hard to be the best that I can be, and I am so far from perfect, but through that process, I've learned that if I can become exceptional, then all of us can. And maybe it's not so much about becoming exceptional as it is about recognizing that we already are. Just the fact that we live on this earth, that we exist, that we breathe in and out all day long, that we're human beings with hands that can that can touch people and hold them and eyes that can look into another person's soul and hearts that can beat and love maybe just inherently we are that exceptional because I look at my life and the things I've been through and, and, and how far I've come and I don't see anything in that process that couldn't be replicated by anyone. And that evidence leads me to believe that every single one of us is that tremendously powerful and exceptional. There's a story that I actually um, would like to share. And I, I don't actually, I don't know that I've ever shared this in such a public form. I've shared it in a few speaking engagements, but in like smaller groups, like maybe 50 or 100. I don't know that I've ever shared it to a large, large audience, but I feel, um, I just feel inclined to share it here. And I think it may be the perfect, the perfect audience for this. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you've, you've created an audience that, that, isn't cynical, that, that has a desire to step into love and a desire to be the best that they can, not just for them, but for the collective good. So thank you for creating that environment that can... Oh, they're the best. I'm just happy to get to hang out yeah, with them. Seriously, well, you've created an environment that, that has space for a story of this nature. So after my son died, and I don't mean in a general way, I literally mean like right after he died, um, I was holding him in my arms. He'd been hooked up to like a million machines. And the doctor had finally come in and just said, look, like, this is it. Would you like to hold him? And I hadn't held him in days because he just seemed so fragile and all these machines were hooked up to him. And I was so scared of bumping something or messing something up. And of course, in these last moments, I was desperate to have him in my arms. And I said, absolutely. And they brought in a rocking chair and I sat down in that chair and they handed me my little boy. And it was so beautiful. I was able to sing him a lullaby as he left this earth. And it was a very sacred experience. My husband had his hand on, on our son's chest, feeling for those last beats of his heart while I rocked him and sang to him. And it was just 
such a tender and beautiful moment. And it's, it's easy for all of us to, in a way, transport ourselves there. We can't necessarily transport ourselves to the totality of it, but we understand love and we understand how hard it would be to let go of something like that and to, to be present in such a sacred moment. But what, what we don't often think about, or I certainly never had before I experienced this, was the moments directly following that moment. After my son's spirit did leave his body, after my son was lifeless in my arms, then what? Here I am sitting in a hospital room holding my dead boy. And I can't stay there forever. At some point, I have to stand up and walk away. But, but what do you do? It was the great unknown on so many levels. There's, there's no training for that. There's, there's no movie that illustrates for me how I should respond in those circumstances. I'd never read a book that talked about those moments following, immediately following that kind of loss. So here I am holding my boy. And I remember looking around the room and just being desperate for someone to say, here's what you do next. Because I'm looking at this cold, sterile hospital bed. And I can't really imagine just laying his body there and walking away. And what what am I going to put him in a casket? Like, I truly did not know what to do next or where we go from there. And I actually remember saying out loud, how, how? And I shut my eyes and I just prayed with my whole heart and just said, God, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know. I, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. And I just felt this surge of warmth and love in the deepest part of me, this connection to power and to light and to love that I had never, ever felt before. It's hard for me to articulate it because I really don't, I want to be respectful of, of the different ways that, that each of us processes experiences of this nature and the different language we each use. So I'm going to have to leave it to listeners to, to translate into language that works for them because the only way that I know to describe it was just an intensely spiritual experience. And in every cell of my body, I felt love the deepest part of myself. And it was as if I felt this connection to a me that wasn't just like born in 1981 and was having this horrible, horrifying experience in a hospital room in the year 2010. It was as if I was connected to this force and this being who had existed for always and forever. And that yes, me on my own, Natalie, that was born in 1981 and that had lived until this moment in 2010, she did not have the power and capacity on her own to know what to do next. But that love, that light, that feeling, that version of me that I now knew existed inside of me did. And I was able to stand up inside of that power and that strength and that light. And I didn't even know at that point what I was going to do, but I stood up and I'm holding my son and this nurse walks up to me. And I just say, what do I do? And I remember looking into her eyes. I remember that crystal, crystal blue of those eyes. And I remember that her eyes were brimming with tears. And she said to me, would you like me to rock him for a while? And I was able to just hand my little boy over to this woman 
And she sat down in the rocking chair that I just stood up from. And she just gazed at my sweet little boy and rocked him. And I don't know what happened next, but I don't care because I was able to walk out encompassed by that love. And I was able to leave him encompassed by that love. And the side story there, of course, is that woman showing up, being brave enough to step forward in that intimate, intimate time and offer me her humanity. How often we're afraid to show up in these intimate spaces because we don't want to overstep. But look at that gift she gave me through being willing to stand up, to show up in love. I will never forget her. I don't know her name. I don't know where she lives. I know nothing about her, but I will never forget her because that is likely the most kind thing, the most generous, the most deeply thoughtful and significant thing anyone has ever done for me. And so I was able to to leave that hospital with a clearer sense of who I was. Even though I felt weak and small, I now knew that I wasn't because I had felt what existed inside of me. And also I had this newfound understanding of what love had the capacity to look like in the lives of others, the way that me showing up for others could bless them and vice versa. And so I was so completely changed through that experience in and of itself. And it wasn't until weeks, maybe even months later that I kind of returned to it and processed it in a different way, but it helped me realize that I'm powerful You're powerful. All of us, we are all so powerful. And we can't wait around for opportunities to tap into that power. We can't wait around for opportunities to show love. We have to create those opportunities. We have to, in this moment, in this day, in these circumstances, be who we have the capacity to be, even if it's baby steps. We have to start here and now because it is so easy to put off growth, to put off progress, to put off our dreams and our ambitions until some elusive time in the future when the dust settles, so to speak. Natalie, I'm just, I'm coming out of this so flabbergasted and with goosebumps and hearing you share all of this in such an articulate and powerful and real way. It's so powerful for me, and I have no doubt our listeners. And it just leaves me asking the question, you know, and this is something I love to ask with every episode, but I I especially want to ask it today. How can we turn this into something actionable? How can we, listening to this story, actually do something with this? How can we move forward and, and live our lives differently tomorrow than we did today? What does that look like? Well, there's two things that I would say. And there are more ways of thinking, and I'll go into the actionable side of it as well. But the first would be to stop pretending like the dust is ever going to settle. (laughs) You know, we have this, like, think about how often we say, you know, once this happens, then I'll be able to heal that relationship. I said that like three times today. Yeah, 100%. We're all, this is another great, great equalizer of human existence is this, this, uncanny ability to postpone things for the future. And generally, as far as it relates to our personal development, our spiritual development, the things we're postponing are usually the most important, right? The things that if we sat down and made a list of the things in our lives that matter the very most, the things on that list, most of them would be the very things that we're day in and day out postponing, that we're waiting for the dust of our lives to settle so that we can finally live that dream or yeah they're so important to us that we 
that we want to do them right. We want to do them well. And so we push them away. Or we don't know how. We don't have the right? capacity. Exactly. We, we really yeah. don't know how. And, and it's a lot easier to, to fall into that space of, you know what, I've, I've got a lot of, um, I've got a lot of really good excuses, right? And, and they are good excuses. Are you kidding me? We all have a million amazing excuses and they're perfectly suitable if you're willing to give up your dream for your excuse. And if you are comfortable in that space, great. There's no one that's going to pass judgment on that. But if you are not willing to give up your dream for your excuse, then you need to figure out a way to show up for that dream here and now. Because if my life is evidence of nothing else, it's evidence of the fact that the dust doesn't settle. You know, we've talked about all these different these different hardships or, or losses that we've experienced. And I, I can't help but think if I had, after my, my brother died, said, you know, once I'm through with my grief, then I'll be able to, you know, start my company, my photography company, which, which really, really took off in the months and years after his death because it was such a passion project for me. But had I waited, you know, that wouldn't have happened. Or, or postponing, like becoming a life coach, thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not qualified. I've got to get this kind of an education. Or I've got to go out and do this thing. Or, or I, we need more money so I can launch this in the right way or whatever. We have a million reasons that we can postpone. Well, as all these hardships are happening, my brother dying, my son dying, our, our, our wonderful adoption, or I hate saying foster kids because that just feels so trite in comparison to what they actually were to us. But not that foster children aren't wonderful, but I never once thought of them as being a temporary part of our home. From day one, they were permanent. It was forever. So it's hard for me to, to refer to them as as foster because that inherently has that, that idea of being temporary. But all those things just coming at me one after the next. And if I was waiting to live my best life until the dust of my life settled, I would still be waiting. And that's an entire decade of growth, progress, rich, deep, emotionally transformative experiences, a decade of kindnesses extended and received that I don't know would have existed if I was waiting for the time that I felt as though I had the capacity. Because even now, I don't know that I have the capacity. Life is exhausting, right? That, that idea of burnout. And when you have all these compounded griefs and, and difficulties, that exhaustion is so permeating. And even just this last July, our 10-year-old son was crossing the street and he was struck by an SUV um, that was going 40 miles an hour. He was put in intensive care. We thought we were going to lose him. He was in the hospital for over a month. We're still dealing with the repercussions of that physically as well as mentally. I've seen the photos on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a miracle that he lived. And and I, I will say that there that there is a part of me that at that point when when I got the call and when I showed up the, at the hospital, there was a point at which I truly shook my finger at heaven and was like, I really have reached my quota. Like at this point, no more. Like I'm not saying goodbye to another little boy that I, you know, I just, I knew that I was at the end and thank God we did receive a miracle. Um, and our, and our boy is home and healthy. And there are some things he needs another re facial reconstruction surgery at some point. And, you know, there's some other things going on, but he's alive and he's well, but all of these things, I'm mentioning them not to be like, oh my gosh, look at my life. It's the worst. But instead just to say like, I get it. Like I get stuff blindsiding you. I get it when life shows up and whacks you in the face with a baseball bat and you get up and it happens again. I get it. And I get how dizzying that is. And still it is your life. Whether the life is smooth sailing or whether it is, excuse my French, but a shitstorm of hardship, it is still your life. 
And so we have to show up for it. We can't wait until some future elusive time when all of our ducks may be in a row to start figuring out how to live more fully, how to be more present and alive, how to be more kind, how to how to love our neighbor more completely, how to, to stop living in shame, how to open our hearts and be more vulnerable. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. But if we keep waiting, my fear for us all is that we may just wait forever because life is shorter than we think. And it is what it is. So why not take whatever it is and make it phenomenal, right? Why not take the, the dust and, and make it beautiful, turn it into what you want your life to be and stop feeling like at some point there will be some elusive time that will show up when everything just falls into place because I don't know that I believe that that time exists. So the first thing is changing our mentality in that way. The second thing is to recognize the significance of your contribution. I think that, that we all go through life and I guess not all of us. Some of us go through life with a with a really um, inflated sense of self, right? Uh, but for the majority of us, we tend to feel as though these great contributions that make these significant differences in other people's lives aren't for us to make because we aren't exceptional enough or we aren't brave enough or compassionate enough or whatever the thing might be. But who do you think you are to think that way? We need each other. If I've learned nothing else, it's how significantly we need each other. And that means we need you, specifically you listening, you and you and you. We need your contribution because your contribution and your unique brand of love and light will look different than mine. It will look different than my husband's. It will look different than Ashley Lemieux's, right? It's going to look different and we need all of it. And so if you're sitting there feeling insecure and you're feeling like, you know, maybe other people can work hard and and have their dreams come true, but I'm somehow unworthy of that. Who are you kidding? That's just another excuse. It's another excuse to not show up. It's another excuse to play small because You are as exceptional as any one of us because that worth is inherent. It is yours and it is mine no matter what. And being willing to first mentally step into that power and say, you know what? I have a responsibility. Being amazing isn't just about me. It's about the impact. My life is a lot happier because I have a successful business, for sure. But my life is also about the impact that I make in the lives of others. So yes, it's blessing me because I do have a successful business and I do have a, a life that is incredibly enriching and fulfilling, but that's not the only reason I need to be at my best. I need to be at my best because I have a responsibility to bless the lives of others. And so we don't have the luxury of sitting around and playing small. And so first understanding those two things, number one, the dust doesn't settle, get up, show up, it's time, this is your life, show up for it. And number two, You don't have the luxury of playing small because you think we don't need you, but we do. I needed that nurse, that sweet, brave little nurse with those beautiful blue eyes brimming with tears. I needed her in that exact moment. And I don't know what my experience looking back would be like had she not had the courage to stand up and show up for me, right? And each of us has those kinds of opportunities every single day day. So when we move into the actionable side, when we follow that vein, it's just a matter of showing up, of smiling, of being willing to put your dang phone away and look the checkout clerk in the eye 
Tell them thank you. Smile at them. Ask them how their day is going. Being willing to not allow the stupid, silly garbage of everyday life drag you under to the point where you're not experiencing joy and spreading joy. A lot of the stuff that we get bogged down by, I hate to say this because I really, I have a lot of compassion for people and I get that suffering is suffering. I mentioned that earlier, but I really have a lot of compassion. However, when people sit and complain about, I don't know, stupid things, there's a part of me that thinks, are you kidding me? This is what we're complaining about. Like you couldn't find a parking place. Like, I'm super sorry for you, but like my kid died. And there's people living in the Middle East that are like worrying about bombs going off in their children's school buildings. And you know what I mean? Like we horribleize for ourselves and we give ourselves a lot of unnecessary pain. So my question for your listeners, like if we're really looking for what's actionable, my question for you would be, how would your life look different if you didn't let yourself get bogged down, if you didn't allow yourself to horribleize every little difficulty that you face, if you didn't allow those hardships to have power over you. Now, that's not to say that you don't recognize them, that you don't validate the way that you feel. That's okay. But if you're still swimming in adrenaline and frustration three hours later from the road rage that you felt on your commute to work this morning, and now it's noon and you're going to lunch and you're still suffering from that, that's a problem. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's okay to feel what you feel. It's okay to experience those things are you going to allow them to overtake you or not? And if you're willing to let them go, how might your life look differently? If you chose not to be offended or you chose not to participate in gossip or you chose to just be honest, even when it's hard, or you chose to reach out and love to people, especially the ones who are a little bit rough around the edges, how might your life look different? How might your life feel different? So it's not so much a matter of a blanket statement, here, go do this. It's just the idea of, choosing to invest your energy and your actions in a different way and then have the glorious surprise of it's like unwrapping a gift every day a gift to yourself and to the world what's this going to look like I'm approaching life differently and we get to see the magic of what that looks like and it's going to look like it's going to look differently in every single life but it will be equally as beautiful as well Oh man, what a great conversation. Isn't Natalie truly the best? I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by her story and her ability to speak such powerful truths with ease and conviction. Wow. (laughs) Normally this is where I'd share a part of the show that really connected with me or an action step that I think we can all take, but I'm having a hard time picking just one thing. And honestly, I don't know if you can blame me. So I'm just going to end with this. Go and follow Natalie on Instagram. There's so much beauty in her feed. You'll see what I mean once you get there. Just search Natalie Norton on Instagram. Or as always, you can find the links to Natalie and and everything else you need to know about her on this week's show notes at soundsgoodpodcast.com slash Natalie. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you're a fan of Natalie, like I am, you'll also love our conversation with Ashley Lemieux, who we talked about earlier in this episode, and our powerful episode with Kevin and Blake Walsh, a married couple with an incredible love story. 
Both of these episodes show an emphasis on holding both joy and sorrow in the same hand. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Thank you so much to Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio for editing and mixing the show. And thank you so much to Christy Karen Brock for your production support. All week long, we share lots of hopeful stories from around the world on social media. And you can find that by following us everywhere, especially Instagram. That's my favorite spot at goodgoodgoodco. There you can also learn about the other things we create. We every single week create a good newsletter that celebrates five pieces of good news from around the world. It'll show up in your inbox on Tuesday, Good News Day. And we also create a physical newspaper called the Good Newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements shaping the world for the better. So with that, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Remember Natalie's words this week. Stay awake to the fact that you are living into finding your meaning. The why allows you to weather anyhow. And finally, don't wait for the dust to settle. Sound good? 